I invite you to find Luke chapter 6 in your Bible, and I wish you a, a good morning as well. We're spending time in the Gospel of Luke right now, uh, studying, broadly studying the topic of the kingdom of God. It can be a little bit tough to answer the question, what is the kingdom of God? Most of us didn't grow up being uh, schooled in how to answer that question. The kingdom of God, very simply, is that realm in which God is reigning. It's a very simple answer, but it's a true answer. The kingdom of God is that realm in which God is reigning. So, it was present on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He, in his person, was the realm in which God was reigning when he walked the earth. That was then. The kingdom of God is present currently, right now, in, on earth, in the Christian. If you are a, a believer in Jesus Christ, that's you. You are the present manifestation of the kingdom of God because you are the realm in which God is reigning. The Holy Spirit dwells inside you. God is reigning in you. So past, present, also future. The kingdom of God will be present on earth in all of its fullness, in all of its holy wonderfulness when Christ returns. So the kingdom of God is both already and not yet, okay? Taking some time, quite a bit of time actually, to study the kingdom of God. And we've made it to Luke chapter 6, where Jesus is teaching on the foundational principles of the kingdom of God. And we noticed last week the broad structure that we find here. He is giving us the kingdom perspective on self. We talked about that last Sunday. We're going to spend two Sundays on the next area, the kingdom perspective on others. So there's self, there's others. And then finally, three weeks from today, we will see what he has to say about the kingdom perspective on on Jesus or on God. So there will be self and others and God, and that very nicely covers all of life, really, okay, right here in three sections. And so today, our first Sunday, talking about the the kingdom perspective on others, and the special focus today is the Christian and their enemy, the Christian and their enemy. This will be verses 27 to 36, okay? Now, it can be tricky to get a handle on The question, who exactly is my enemy? Um, Not many of us keep a list in our desks of our enemies. We may not know right away who who is he talking about when he says my enemy. We're going to talk about that pretty much first thing after we read the text, okay? We'll ask the question, who exactly is our enemy? But let's read the text first, verse 27 through verse 36. All right, if you're able this morning, let's stand in honor of God and his word. Jesus speaking. Luke six twenty seven. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. 
And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the the way that it makes us whole this morning by reminding us that we could never be enough, but Jesus has been enough in our place. And by casting our faith on him, admitting our sin, that we could never be enough, and just looking to Christ, we receive all of his fullness and all of his grace and all of his merit. He stands in for us and has been our substitute. We, we look to him with eyes of faith and, and say, thank you, Father, for sending a sacrifice for our sins. We believe in his name. And Father, as we love him for that, help us to love his teaching just as much. We're so tempted and so prone to accept the sacrifice and all of the riches that that brings with it, but to look at the teaching and say, I don't know. I pray we would fall just as in love with what he says as we are with what he did. Make it so, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Please be seated. One important note here at the beginning, because we're, we're talking about an ethic, talking about an ethic this morning, the kingdom ethic on how to treat enemies. Very important to know right up front that the ethic that's described here is not an ethic for the state. Not talking about what a a state government does with their military decisions. That's a different subject with a different passage of scripture to govern um, how to do that God's way. Romans 13, for instance. This is an individual ethic. And this is a, a corporate ethic for the church, not the state, for the church. This is for us. Jesus is talking to his disciples. We read that in verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. So with that note having been given, let's, let's start here and ask the question, who exactly is my enemy? You know, the text actually helps us figure that out. We, we have several statements here in parallel with each other, okay? So there's love your enemies first, that's verse 27, and then there are several other statements after that in parallel with it that we can look to to say, okay, who does Jesus have in mind here when he's talking about our enemy? We can figure it out. Love your enemies and then do good to those who hate you. 
Your enemy is someone who hates you. Go on further, verse 28. Those who curse you. Also verse 28, those who abuse you. Okay, see how the idea of enemy is being filled out here? Those who hate you, those who curse you, those who abuse you. Verse 29, the one who strikes you. Verse 29 and also verse 30, the one who takes away from you. So we have a a fully orb description of who your enemy may be. As someone who feels hatred toward you. We could call that passive hostility. It's a simmering hostility towards you. Someone who curses you, that's really more of an active hostility. That's hatred verbalized. Someone who abuses you, that's the idea of ongoing hostility. Hostility taking place over time. The one who strikes you, that's the idea, of course, of physical harm. The one who steals from you, they have robbed you of something that you need or that you love. If we summarize all those things, we could say that your enemy is someone who seeks your harm and not your good. And Jesus describes the different ways in which they may seek your harm. Now, I don't think it's inappropriate or in bad taste for you to actually call to mind someone or some people that may fit this category for you. We're working on our response to these people, so it's okay to call someone to mind or a group um, that has shown active or passive hostility toward you, that has done some of these things to you. Maybe they took something from you. Maybe it was something tangible. They stole your money. They stole something from you. Maybe it's something intangible. Maybe they stole your joy. Maybe they stole all of the the sweetness out of your life. Maybe you used to be like this and now you're not and you point the finger at someone else because of what they did to you. They changed your life in a negative way. Maybe you have someone in mind and so the next question is how do you feel like responding to them? What do you hope happens to them? Is it a positive thing or is it a negative thing? The natural thing, the human thing, is to seek harm for harm. To return hatred for hatred and wound for wound. The natural thing is to allow ourselves to be dragged into this inertia of hatred and just keep the whole thing going. So having called those things to mind and considered what your natural response is, what you want to do, the next question is this. Do I want to be Jesus' disciple? I've got some enemies. Here's what they've done to me. Here's how I feel like responding. Now, do I want to be Jesus' disciple? 
And before you say yes, remember where this road with Jesus is leading. It leads to a cross. What does that mean? The cross is the place of apparent weakness in order to display the power of God. That's where being his disciple will lead you. So you need to decide up front, are you okay with appearing weak and pitiful in the eyes of the world? There are a growing number of professing, professing Christians who are saying, no, we're not okay with that. We're not okay with projecting weakness. In fact, if you, if you follow current happenings, if you follow current discussions in the evangelical Christian world, you may know that this very week, this has been the main conversation. It, it couldn't be more relevant or current right now. This has been the question. The substance of the question is this. As we witness the culture around us grow increasingly hostile to Christian conviction and practice, as the time for kindness to our enemies passed, has the time for gentleness run out? Isn't it time for anger and striking back so that we can do something called regain control? Here's another way to pose the same question. Can the ethic that Jesus teaches here only get us so far before we have to abandon it in order to achieve an important victory? So before you say that you want to be Jesus' disciple, please ask yourself, am I willing to listen to what he says here and to submit to it? Look at his opening words. Look look at verse 27. So easy to skip over this. His opening words, but I say to you who hear, okay? The word but means he is introducing something different. It's gonna be a very different idea, a very different way to deal with enemies. He's saying, but. The words, I say, but I say to you who hear. The words, I say, means that Jesus is speaking and we have to be quiet. We have to quiet our soul and put away all of our natural ideas about what we want to do and what we think is right and what we think the priority ought to be because he's speaking now. And the words, to you who hear, mean that we must pay very close attention and make sure that we are among those who really hear and really take to heart what he's saying. 
Could it be that you have been standing around him for a long time and never really heard what he's saying? Especially in this area. He says, but I say to you who hear, don't you want to be among those who hear? Well, what do we, what do we hear? What is he saying to us? We can, we can divide what he says, this whole passage that we read, we can divide it into two parts. He gives us the, the basics of the ethic. That is, he tells us what to do, okay? And then he gives us the rationale for the ethic. He tells us why, why we're to do it. So that's our, that's our outline, that's our framework for today. What are the basics of the ethic? And then what's the rationale? Why are we supposed to do it? All right, so let's start with the basics. Two subheadings, two things we're going to notice about the ethic, okay? First of all, it's an active ethic. I want to take some time and notice with you how active this ethic is. Look at, look at back at the text and notice how active it is. Do good to those who hate you. That's an active concept, isn't it? Do good. Bless those who curse you. That's another active concept. Bless. Pray for those who abuse you. That's an active concept. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Active. Verse 30, give. Verse 31, as you wish that others would do to you. In the, in the conceptual world, in, the, in your heart, what you wish others would do for you. Put it into practice toward them. Do so to them. That's an active concept. Do good. Bless. Pray for. Offer. Give. Do. This is an ethic of actively seeking the good of those who seek our harm. Okay? Just stop and understand. We are to actively seek the good of those who seek our harm. And I want to press this home in a very specific way because we have to refute this notion that as Christians, what we are called to is just this kind of passive acceptance of everything the world might throw at us. That, you know, as soon as someone starts talking today about being kind and gentle, the very first argument out of their opponent's mouth is, well, what are we supposed to do? Just let everybody run us over? Are we just supposed to be Christian pushovers and just accept it? No. What an ignorance of the text. Absolutely not. Have you never read Luke 6 and seen the active ethic of what we are supposed to do for our enemies? It is not passive. It is active. We just don't know how we are to be active. And it's active in a way that we don't want to be active. Christians are not called to be passive pushovers. We are called to be active blessers. And that can happen corporately. We as a people can do that. That can also happen individually, the individual level, with you and that person you have in mind that has been seeking your harm. What has your response been to them so far? Has it been actively hostile? 
Has it been just passive acceptance? Or have you become an active blesser of that person? And does anything need to change in your response? So first of all, this is an active ethic, and this is how we are to be active. Second thing that we notice here is that it's a universal ethic. It's both active and it's universal. That is to say, there's no exceptions made. There's no end date given here for how long we're supposed to behave this way, to act this way. There are no qualifiers. Jesus doesn't say anything like, do this unless it gets really bad, and then you can strike back. Or unless it goes on for a really long time, and then it's okay. He doesn't say, act this way unless it's not working. And then it's okay to do something that works better. And this is really ground zero of this whole current debate about the Christian ethic towards persecution. There are Christians arguing that this ethic of kindness and understanding and charity toward those who are evil isn't working anymore. It's not working to be kind. It's not working to be gentle. It's not working to be meek. It's not working to love our enemies. We're losing ground culturally, politically. A shift in strategy is appropriate because the conditions have changed. It's an argument that's happening right now, this week. And to that kind of argument, there are at least two responses. Here, here are the two that I will at least give this morning. Number one, the goal of this ethic is not for it to work in some way. The goal of this ethic that Jesus lays out here is not for it to work in some way. Our, our goal is not to use this ethic to achieve some earthly victory or converts or to maintain control of something. The notion of doing what works is called pragmatism. Pragmatism says, if it works, do it. And we are not pragmatists. We are Christians. We have a different goal, a different rationale for doing what we're doing. And that's what we're going to get to in the last point. Here's the second response. And this is is a response to that argument that is going to honor the intent of the person asking that question. Because to the person who says, you know, it might be time to start trying something else besides kindness toward the evil because it doesn't seem to be working. We want to honor and we want to remember and understand that that person's goal is to see Christ reigning. And that's a good goal. It's just a difference in how do we go about that? What are our methods going to be? And the question that they're really asking is, is there ever a time to abandon this ethic and do harm to an enemy? Could things ever get so bad that we need to shelve Luke 6 and try something else because it's just getting too bad? So let's think about that question. Let's take it to the extreme and ask the question, is there ever a time to actually seek the harm of an enemy? Could that ever be something that God would favor or smile on? Especially 
if by seeking the harm of that enemy and taking out that enemy, we can help a lot of other people because there's so much damage being done by this enemy. So now, of course, we have to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer because that is the preeminent example of this conundrum. Most of you have heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may not know exactly who that is. Bonhoeffer, the theologian and and pastor. Bonhoeffer, the German who was, was hung in a Nazi prison camp. 1945. Only a month before the war in Europe ended. Bonhoeffer was a committed disciple of Jesus. He was a Christian in the truest sense. He loved the Sermon on the Mount. Wrote a book called Discipleship. Was so frustrated by the religious environment in in Germany and how people just presumed on the grace that God has given and they didn't love God and said, this is what active grace looks like. This is what it looks like when you're really a Christian. You love and embrace the teaching of Jesus. And he embraced this ethic. He thought, he, he believed the Sermon on the Mount was given to be lived out, that it wasn't pie in the sky. It's what Jesus actually expects us to do. He believed in, he practiced this ethic of how to treat your enemies. He was a man of conviction, and this is what he stood for. But what do you do about Hitler? That was his stewardship. That was his question. What are you going to do if you're a private citizen, not a member of the government, not in authority, not in the military, but this man is perpetrating so much evil and suffering on everyone. And what if by taking him out, many others can be saved? Are you still committed to loving your enemy then? And are you still committed to turning the other cheek? That's this dilemma in the extreme form. So as, as you may know, Bonhoeffer joined the conspiracy of those who were seeking to take Hitler out. It was not successful. But he banded together with other like-minded individuals that said, we've got to do harm to this enemy in order to do a greater good. It didn't work. He was found out. He was arrested. He was imprisoned. He was shuttled around to different prison camps. And finally, in April of 45, he was hung. Bonhoeffer, the pastor, Bonhoeffer, the disciple of Jesus. Did he do the right thing? Was his participation in the conspiracy a violation of the kingdom principles that we find in Matthew 5 and Luke 6? Did he do what Jesus would have wanted him to do? Is there ever a time to abandon this ethic? Is there an extreme situation that we could get into where we might choose a different course toward an enemy than love and blessing? 
In other words, does the cost of living like this ever get too high? Too many people dying. Too much abuse happening. That was a situation that Bonhoeffer faced, and who knows, we may face it too. We're not going to try to answer the question, did Bonhoeffer do the right thing? We're going to notice something else that I think is more, um, more helpful to us than trying to sort out the nuances of did he do the right thing, okay? Here's what we're going to notice. This is more important and it's very interesting. Simply notice who God entrusted this agonizing choice to. Who was it that got this stewardship and this choice? Who was it, if not the person who was among those who were the most committed to this ethic? It was the person who was the most committed that was tested the most severely. who was forced to answer the question, what are you going to do? The most committed got the most severe test. Now, think, Bible students. We see this happen in the scriptures too. Let me give you a couple examples. The most committed person getting the most severe test. Think about the Old Testament. Who in the Old Testament was the, the most committed to the beauty and purity and glory of God. Who is the person who wanted a clean heart the most? Who was the person most in love with God and what he saw in God and who wrote about it? Who led the whole nation in the worship of the beauty of the Lord? David, the one most committed to the beauty and purity of God, was the one most severely tested on that very point. When he stood there on his roof and looked out and the question was forced upon him, do I really want God? Is, is that really who I'm in love with? Am I still committed to the beauty and the purity of God and having a clean heart? Do I really want God or do I want her? It was the one who was the most committed that was put to the most severe test. Now, think about the New Testament. Who was the most committed to Jesus and said, I am never leaving him. Even if everybody else leaves, it's not going to be me. I am going to be steadfast. I am going to be loyal to him. I'm staying. Who was that person? And who was the one who was tested on that very point? Who was confronted with the question in the courtyard? Am I really going to stay with Jesus? Or am I going to choose safety? And that's quite a stewardship to go through that test. And it was Peter, the one who said, I am the most committed. And who was the most committed? He loved Jesus. 
And it was the one who was the most committed, who was tested the most severely. And so it was Bonhoeffer, the one of unwavering commitment to the Sermon on the Mount in any circumstance. He was the one who faced this incredible choice on how to treat his enemy. Not just any enemy, the man whose name is still most identified with the personification of evil. And in all these cases, it was the one who was the most committed to the right thing, who was tested the most severely on that thing. That's all we're noticing, okay? I'm not saying that Bonhoeffer failed the test. Like we could say, well, David failed and Peter failed. No, I'm not saying that Bonhoeffer failed. I'm not commenting on his decision at all. Who knows what any of us would do in that situation? I don't really think we can know in advance what we would do. But here's the take home. All we can do is be committed to the right thing. Like David, like Peter, like Bonhoeffer. And if God chooses to test us on that very thing, that is his right and his choice. God, give us wisdom and grace in the hour of testing. But from where we stand today, all we can do is look at Luke 6 and say, this is good, this is right, I am 100% committed to this. And God, save me from turning either to the right or to the left. This is where I'm standing. This is how an enemy must be treated. The thing that we have to guard against is looking at this text and saying, nah, It's not going to work anymore. Not practical. Not going to achieve what we want. That is the red flag. That is what we must avoid. That is not discipleship. That is deciding in advance, before the testing, that's deciding in advance, I am walking away from Jesus. His teaching is too hard. I don't want it. I am leaving. That's what happens in John 6. A whole group of people. Jesus is talking about eat my flesh and drink my blood. Nah, I'm gone. This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And they leave. And the numbers get a lot smaller. One of the very sobering lessons we learn from John 6 is that Jesus' teaching is offensive to even his own disciples. We talk a lot about how the gospel is offensive to the world. But we have to remember that Jesus' teaching is offensive even to his own disciples. That happens in John 6. So if you find yourself sitting here this morning saying, I don't like the direction this is going at all. I don't like what's being advocated for. I don't like this whole idea of kindness and I'm about winning and hey, It's been that way since the beginning. Jesus' own disciples leaving him because his teaching is just too hard to accept. And maybe that's how you feel this morning as Jesus presents us with this active and universal ethic, okay? Let's hear what his rationale is and then let's be done. So we know the basics. Let's talk about, just notice what he presents for the why. Why should we act this way? They're both in verse 35. It's very simple. The first one is simply this. The rationale for this ethic, first of all, is reward. Jesus is giving a summary statement, verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. 
I, I love the understated manner of that. It just says, your reward will be great. Let me tell you, if Jesus says your reward will be great, that should be enough for us. He says it's great. What's the nature of the reward? I have no idea. I'm just placing my faith here that the reward is great because he says it's great. And that's good enough for me. Let's let that be good enough for us. That's not all he says. He points out that there's a a reward involved, some kind of reward from God that he calls great. Second point of rationale is resemblance. So it's both reward and resemblance. End of verse 35. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. To be a son of someone is to bear a resemblance to that person. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. In this case, when we treat our enemies this way, we bear a resemblance to God, the Most High, who according to Luke 6.35, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Let that sink in. God is kind to the evil. God is kind to the evil. God is kind to the evil. And when we are kind to the evil, we look like God. That's his point. Sons and daughters of the Most High, bearing a resemblance to the Most High, who is kind to the evil. Not looking like everyone else, Jesus is calling us to look differently. That's, he goes through all those examples. Don't sinners do the same? Are you just going to love the people that love you? It's not going to look any different from the rest of the world. You're just going to lend to those you know, who and expect something in return and be kind to those who are kind to you. It doesn't look any different from the world. Don't sinners even do the same? He's calling us to look completely different, like God. We don't pursue this ethic because it may or may not work. We pursue this ethic because it's a matter of resembling, not working. It's not a matter of working or not working. It's a matter of resembling or not resembling. And most of the time when we practice this ethic, it's going to look very much like it's not working. There's always going to be things to point to to say, this isn't working at all. Like the persecution is only getting worse. Did it look like Jesus' ethic was working when he was flogged and crucified? Did it look like he was getting anywhere with the ethic that he was promoting? It's not a matter of working. It's a matter of resembling. The question is, when we're dealing with enemies, do we look like God or do we not look like God? This God who is kind and ungrateful even to the evil. And not telling you anything you don't know, I think we all understand that we are going to be sorely tested on this point. We as Christians are going to be sorely tested on this point. 
pretty soon. How soon? I don't know. I just know it's not a far-fetched question anymore. Things are going to go from hard to harder as Christian conviction becomes more and more out of step with the prevailing culture. It's going to become more and more unpalatable to the prevailing culture, and we will be esteemed as the evildoers by the prevailing culture. We know that. It's happening now. It's not a far-fetched question that when the enemy, when the people working for our harm and not our good surround us. They surround the Christian people and we feel the social, economic, and even the physical effects of persecution. What will happen? What will we look like? What will we turn into when that happens? What instincts will kick in at that point? Will all of the time that we have spent studying the Bible and all of the time we have spent in this room and listening to who knows how many sermons, will any of that do us any good in that moment? What will we become? Will it be weapons and hatred and cursing and winning? Or will it be blessing and praying and forgiving and dying? Which one of those looks more like the cross? And which one will you choose? We all want to look like Jesus up to a certain point. We're all in for looking like Jesus up to the point where we can maintain respectability in a life of relative ease. And as long as we can show outward signs of strength. But in Luke 6, Jesus is calling his disciples to look like him all the way to an enemy-loving, enemy-blessing, embarrassing death that looks weak in the eyes of the world but actually displays the power of God. The specific point that we will be tested on is whether we actually do love and embrace the cross. That will be the question do we still love and still embrace the cross? The cross that we wear on our necklaces, the cross that we put on our sign outside by the street where everybody can see it, the cross that we put on the wall. But at the end, at the testing point, will we actually abandon it and take up a sword? Will we abandon the cross, the sign of weakness, to take up an instrument of strength? and forfeit everything that we have said that we stand for for a long, long time? Will we decide that our enemies are in our way? Start returning harm for harm and curse for curse? Or will we take up the cross and embrace the cross and cling to the cross in all of its humiliation so that we can be sons and daughters of the Most High 
and find our reward in God? Will it mean anything to us to have the chance to be sons and daughters of the Most High? And will the reward Jesus has promised be enough? I want you to understand that Christ is not leading an army. Not yet. He will. Revelation 19. Christ is not leading an army. He's leading a death march. Because God loves his enemies and determined to die for them. And because God loves his enemies and determined to die for them, we are called to resemble this great father sons and daughters of the Most High. And if we think there's anything better than that out there somewhere, that there's some other higher goal to be achieved than resembling the Most High, we do not understand God. We have not understood who God is. Jesus says these things to those who hear. Lord, um, so much of this just runs against the grain of who we are as a people and what we want. But I just pay the, I, I pray the big prayer that not only would we accept this teaching, that we would love it. That we would love this teaching and our chance to be different and our chance to glorify you in this generation. Not in the way that we would choose, but in the way that you have taught us and instructed us to glorify you. Help us to love the teaching. Help us to love the cross and love it to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.